I don't know if you knew this, but the world of podcasting is massive. Hi, I'm Leah. I'm the host of CBC's Podcast Playlist. There is such a constant avalanche of new releases, it can be hard to keep up. Luckily, Podcast Playlist can help. Every week, we deep dive into the podcast world to find the most compelling stories. And every month, we'll give you a sneak peek into the hottest new releases so you can stay ahead. Tune in to Podcast Playlist on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. 15 Canadian teenagers, all climate activists, are going to have their day in court. Four years ago, they filed a lawsuit against the federal government saying it had failed to protect them from climate change. Not long after, a lower court dismissed the case. But now the Federal Court of Appeal has overturned that decision and said the lawsuit should go to trial. It will be the first case of its kind in this country. Lauren Wright is one of the plaintiffs. Good morning. Good morning. I want to ask you your, your reaction first when you heard about the, the ruling from the, the Federal Court of Appeal saying that this should go to trial. How did you feel about that? It was just a very overwhelming sense of, of relief. It's, it's been such a long time coming at this point. It's, it's hard to put into context um, against like a backdrop of, of someone in adulthood. But, you know, this has been such a huge part of, of our lives and to finally, after four years, have a court affirm our rights and the government's responsibility to us as youth, as citizens, was just a moment of massive, overwhelming relief. Well, tell me, Lauren, what inspired you? What motivated you to take the federal government to court in the first place? Well, I think the situation with a lot of our plaintiffs is that we were activists before we were litigants. Um, we had gotten our start trying to work in other avenues of of climate justice and seeking that. For me, it started with the climate strike movement, getting involved with that, getting involved with politics, and kind of seeing that, you know, no matter what I was doing in that realm, a combination of, of my position as a young person in society and my my lack of, of formal experience or training kind of left me out of a lot of conversations. And I think with a lot of us, we found no matter what we did as activists, we were not having our rights recognized in a way that gave us equal standing with those who are creating the laws and creating the systems that have caused us harm. Well, let's talk about that, because uh, you're saying that the federal government has failed to protect your charter rights. So just to explain how, how the government has failed you. So uh, a really interesting thing about this case is we're not just saying we will be impacted in the future by climate change. All of our plaintiffs are experiencing unique, prolonged, life-altering consequences of climate change. Um, for me, I'm someone with multiple disabilities, so a lot of my impacts are health-related. I live in Saskatchewan, and we've been really affected by, by wildfires. You know, it's been the past four years have just been constant smoke so I'm not able to go outside and do what I need to do and then on the flip side of that all of these extreme weather patterns and events are, are making my life really really difficult and painful I live with something called Raynaud syndrome so you know at this point six to eight months of the year I'm not able to to go outside because of the rapid changes as a result of climate catastrophe climate events and just to explain big, that a little, sorry, about the Raynaud syndrome, what impact does that have on, on, on your physical well-being? Um, so basically in cold temperatures, really anything below freezing, um, 
the veins in my hands and feet start to restrict and I lose feeling. Mm. Uh, not fun. Uh, obviously living somewhere where, you know, we've had periods where like this, it's still positive temperatures in December for some reason, but we're going to go completely to the flip side of, you know, negative 40 for weeks possibly. Right. And and you, you wrote an open letter a few years ago about how climate change is not only your physical health, but your, your mental health, the impact on your mental health. How, how, how are you doing today? It's been quite the journey. I When I started advocating, this is an area of, of particular passion for me. I've dealt with mental health struggles for about the past 10 years. Um, and what I was finding was as I was working through all of this with, with therapists and professionals is this this growing sense of, of eco-anxiety and climate grief that's beginning to get some recognition from um, those in the mental health field, from uh, doctors, and from community advocates. Um, it's that sense of, of impending doom, which sounds very dramatic, I realize, but um, the, the day-to-day grief of, of seeing your future compromised, of seeing the people that you were always raised saying, are here to protect you, are here to work in your interest, continue to not do that. And the other side of that is climate disasters are a massive impact on mental health. PTSD is a huge struggle um, for people who have been in floods, wildfires, hurricanes. We're seeing all of that. So it's just that, that daily balance between inaction and anticipation of consequences. Well, let's talk about the inaction because, uh, you know, the federal government, the Trudeau government will tell you that they've taken a number of steps to, to, to combat climate change. They say that they've invested more than $100 billion to fight climate change. They introduced a carbon tax, as you well know, which has been politically unpopular in a, in a, in a lot of sectors here, and, but they continue to fight for that. So what, what more do you want the government to do? Well, the big thing for us is... To use, say, the Paris Climate Agreement as as an example, when we're having things like that, that, you know, they look really good on paper, our governments have signed on, they've promised, but there's a real lack of accountability there, which is what we are trying to address. Um, things like the uh, net zero emissions campaign that, that has been going on for, for that uh, law, there's no built-in accountability. There's no one who's going to to pay to have any kind of fallout if it's not followed through with. And conversely, the commitments that have been made are nowhere near ambitious enough. The the 1.5 degrees of warming expressed in the Paris Climate Agreement, we're on track to surpass that pretty well and within a, a scary time frame. And that's sign that science just cannot agree with. 1.5 degrees of warming already is is catastrophic completely and with the net zero act a complete phase out by 2050 is in line to have nothing resembling a livable future but but lauren do you see that part of the problem here is that in, in terms of the the actions or, or inaction of the government however you want to frame this that there there isn't the public pressure in, in fact the conversations now are saying that there, that less needs to be done that the government is doing too much if you listen to some of the debate right now so is there a role for the public here that isn't putting the pressure on the federal government to do more is, is that is, is the public also complicit in this problem in in your eyes it's kind of complicated for me because I see 
I see people who aren't worried about climate change because they have other things to be worried about living in a time that's the increasing cost of living, things like that. But I think that's kind of what we have realized is that public pressure is most effective, not only in greater numbers, but in targeting areas that the people in charge care about, targeting um, them in court, looking at who's financing who, that kind of thing. It's very much a realm of public pressure that could be expanded for active efficacy. And a lot of what I'm trying to do is, is bridge those gaps between farmers here in Saskatchewan who are unsure about how a carbon tax is going to affect them, but telling them about the forecasts of drought and hail and all of those kind of events moving forward. Climate change is nonpartisan. It doesn't care who you are and everyone will be affected. What outcome do you hope to see from this case, Lauren? The outcome, obviously, is in line with the best available science um, as it emerges. But the big thing for me is legal accountability is is the dream, really, to have an enforcing system of, you know, promises that are not only made, but must be followed through to the letter of the law in a way that encourages accountability because of the consequences that may come out, not just, you know, having it affect election results, but having legally binding frameworks that must be obeyed um, really is the hope here. And, and what happens if you don't get that outcome? Well, I, uh, I think all of us alongside this have, have kept fighting separate from our roles as plaintiffs and trying to, to advocate and to be what the world needs in a sense a lot of us you know we're we're committing our lives to this in in a very serious way i'm i'm going to school right now in biology and hoping to look at how water systems are affected by climate change and how we assure water security on the prairies we have people who are going into law people who are going into the arts and spreading messages people who are going into permaculture and farming so for all of us it's not going to end at the lawsuit. We're, we're still fighting in our daily lives, and we will continue to do so. Lauren, it's good to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Perfect. Thank you so much. Lauren Wright is a 19-year-old climate activist from Saskatoon. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart. And for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Chris Tollefson is the principal at Tollefson Law and co-counsel for the plaintiffs. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Mark. How important for you is it to, to, to have this case be heard the key thing about this case is that it is going to be an opportunity the first time in Canada on a national level uh, for these issues to be addressed. There's a huge benefit to us all in having these cases uh, brought forward. Uh, the science, I think, um, needs to be highlighted and, and these young people need and, and should be given the chance to tell their stories. The lawsuit argues that the the charter rights of these of these young people have been violated by the government's handling of climate change. 
I'm curious to know, how do you prove that? Well, we're asserting in this case two quite novel and important claims. One is that there is a right to a stable climate system capable of supporting human life. And secondly, that governments have a positive duty to ensure that this right is protected. So we propose to advance those claims and support it with science that shows that now and going into the future through the lifetime of these plaintiffs who we say represent, in a sense, all young Canadians that through their lifetime, their charter rights, as, as, we've, as we've claimed them, uh, will be put at risk and violated. But how can you hold one individual government accountable for, for the climate crisis when, when no single government is actually responsible? That's an important issue, I think, in all of these cases. Mm. Governments, I think, have typically defended themselves on the footing that what they have contributed, their responsibility is a, is a drop in the bucket. But I, I think what is interesting to see is that courts are realizing that that is not a tenable defense, that these cases need to be heard, that um, in Canada's case, you know, it's one of the top 10 GHG emitters in in the world. So uh, it's not a trivial contribution globally, but even for countries and, and, and for jurisdictions whose contribution is much less, courts are holding that they have to be held account for their fair share. Mm. of their contribution to this global problem. Yeah, tell me more about that, because I know in, in Montana that there was a high-profile case there. What, what, what happened there? In that case, under the Montana Constitution, there is uh, an express right to a healthy environment of the type that we're saying is embedded implicitly in our Constitution. There, the young people that brought that case were challenging legislation that prohibited government from considering climate change impacts in various decision-making settings. And the court there, after the very first trial on the merits in the U.S., held that um, the legislation was in violation of the Montana Constitution. And, and for you, that, that then is a positive indication that there's, there's hope for similar cases? Well, absolutely. Not just in Montana, but uh, uh, right around but the in world. in other jurisdictions, uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in in Germany and France and in Ireland, uh, these cases have been litigated with, I think, some very positive results. And, and in, in some cases, um, it has spurred on legislative change. It has spurred on public dialogue. Um, and that's what we hope, I think, will happen in this case. Well, we reached out to the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change, and they sent us a statement saying they shared the concerns of Canadians about climate change, but they couldn't comment further because, of course, the matter is before the court. So what, what exactly are, 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 is, are these plaintiffs seeking in terms of action from the government? Well, first of all, I think they want to be heard. They want to be able to tell their stories, and, and uh, I think that's an important function of this forthcoming trial. They also want to advance the best available science. I think there's been uh, a deficit of, of, of discussion of the best available science in, uh, in, in this country to date, so that's another good goal for this trial. And at the end of the day, they hope that a, a judge will be persuaded that uh, at the end of the day, uh, it's necessary to spur Canada on to declare that Canada can do better, that it has a constitutional duty to do better, 
and to um, provide some guidance to Canada as to how it might do that. But why do you think it's up to the courts to do that rather than the public, the voting public, to, to, to send that message to the government? Well, Mark, I think this is a all hands on deck moment, really. I think the courts certainly have a role uh, and, and they're stepping up to do that all around the world. Um, the public has a role. Politicians obviously have a role. I think we all have to weigh in and, and in good faith grapple with these issues. I think we need to dial down the acrimony and, and try to really look at the science and be guided by what the best available science is saying. And would you be pushing for, for, for punitive damages here, for, for, for money as part of the settlement, if you were to not, win the case? No, not at all. I don't think there's any youth-led climate case where money uh, is being sought, and certainly it's not being sought in this case. Um, the goal here really is to force action, compel action, or persuade governments to take action on climate change and for the courts to be part of that process of dialogue. How long have you been a lawyer, Chris? 30 years. So tell me, what's it like uh, representing this this group of, of young plaintiffs? Tell me, describe what that's been like for you. Well, it's been a huge privilege, obviously. Um, they are incredibly committed and articulate group, and Lauren certainly is a great example of that. They're also strategic and, and, and have taken a, a really long view here. They, they um, see that they can make an intervention uh, and, and make a difference uh, by bringing cases like this, but they also have to carry on and, and, and try to make change in other areas. So it's been a really uh, great journey with them, and uh, we're looking forward to continuing on down the road. And, and, and Chris, what precedent would be set if the court were to rule in favor of your clients? Well, I think it's already set a precedent in so far as it is clarified that novel claims should be allowed to proceed if they're securely tethered on legal precedent and that broad claims like ours should not be struck out and that it's uh, important for courts not to shy away from complex or contentious uh, questions. So it's set a precedent in that regard already. Running a full trial will have uh, real benefits in terms of um, illuminating the public debate. And um, as for the ultimate result, that's still uh, a ways off. But I'm sure that win or lose, that will as well have positive benefits in the long run. And you, you said before, like win or lose, you, you know, you're happy to be going through this. But but if but if you are to lose, and I'm sure you're prepared for either outcome, will it all be worthwhile just to make the case in court to, to get that publicity, to, 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 to make sure that your plaintiffs are heard? Yeah, I think especially with these young people, they have something to say. They have experiences that we have not factored in to uh, the debate at this point. And when you combine that with the need to bring better science to the table, Absolutely. Regardless of what happens, um, I really see this decision as, as leading to a very positive outcome for everybody. And, and just give us a timeline. What, what, what happens next now that we, the federal court of uh, appeal has said she go to trial? When will that happen? 
Well, the first thing that we need to do is to sit down with all of our clients and and uh, it's been four years. It's been a, a long road and we want to make sure that they're all ready and willing to go forward with us. Um, the next step after that, the court has signaled that the pleadings have to be uh, redrafted a little bit to ensure that the trial is efficient. Our first task in the new year will be to do that and then we'll sit down with uh, Canada's lawyers and and I think we'll have to work out a, a, a plan to bring this to trial. And we'll be watching. Chris, thanks for talking to us today. We appreciate this. Thank you, Mark. Chris Tollison is the principal at Tollison Law. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.